powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. This is Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports. Streaming through the Seattle Sports app. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Here we go now. New Seahawks offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb set to join us shortly. We are live from Seahawks headquarters, Virginia Mason Athletic Center. Uh, and uh, Grubb will be here. I'm going to interrupt myself. But um, we got a lot of really good questions from listeners, Bump, um, about how aggressive he's going to be, uh, differences he's anticipating between college and pros, lots of which I'm interested in asking. What are you most curious to learn from Ryan today? Um just what attracted him to this job obviously the the jump from college football to the nfl is the main attraction but you got to set yourself up for success as well and um i wonder if he looks at the roster the same way that i look at it like goodness gracious i you got potential receiver uh, more just personnel wise yeah potential like yeah. how these guys can be used in his offense and uh, just what he expects out of it so um yeah just what it, what does this job do for his soul too man because um Coaching is stressful, and um, this Man. is going to be a challenge. But the challenge, I think he's ready for. I'm curious to learn exactly what he would like to see the team do at pick number 16. Mm. <laughs> and I plan to ask You're going to ask him that? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> there are certain questions people sent in that I was like, I'm too scared. I'm not right for this job. It's not made for me. I can't ask that question. This is why I would never make it to a Senate hearing. <laughs> I'd be like, if it's okay with you, if you want to answer, if not, that's fine. It's up to you. If not, I got another question ready to go. <laughs> yes, I got another one in the chamber if that's not okay. No, I, I can't wait to talk about uh, offensive philosophy. And, and um, I think that um, what Seahawks fans, myself included, are so curious to know is like, we're so used to the team that we've seen for 14 years, and mm -hmm. it hasn't always looked exactly mm -hmm. like that, right? Because of personnel changes you've right. had. Ryan Grubb walking in with us right now. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean you haven't known exactly the team that you're, in theory, going to be. And now we get to see new philosophies right. enter the building. One of them with us right now. Hey, Coach, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. How are you all doing? Uh, fantastic. Yeah. Your new offensive coordinator, Ryan Grubb, joining us uh, right now. Um, Coach, I mentioned uh, to listeners that we were going to have you on, and we have a bajillion questions. <laughs> I know we don't have you for too long, but um, I'm sure that you've, you've heard a lot of these people so excited, so excited to just kind of see, uh, you know, what you have in store here, because you had such an electric offense with Washington. Um, and I know that it's a bit different, right? Like you're, you're right. dealing with the NFL in this case. You don't have all the same weapons. But is there stuff that you're hoping you can still translate over to the pros? I mean, you look at this wide receiver group. Yeah, I think we had three pretty good receivers at Washington, and we got three pretty good ones here. So uh, it, it certainly starts there with the weapons that you have at your disposal. And we had two really good young tackles and obviously experienced quarterback room. Coach, um, a lot of people highlight your passing game, which they should, right? Um, one of the top passing games that in the country the last terrible. couple of years. Where did you get that? I wore it just for you, did Coach. Did you get that at Goodwill? No, nah, you know, I got a scent to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing a Coogs uh, sweater for you guys. I almost you guys wore my UW one today. Uh, you should have, man. I know. I'm sorry. You know? I'm sorry. I was, uh, <laughs> but, um, oh, man, I was distracted. Um, oh, your pass game. Uh, they always yeah. talk about your pass game, but the more I watch your offense, the more impressed I am with the run game, man. Like the Appreciate gap team that. stuff and, and the way you use that to kind of influence the defense you get the eyes going the wrong way right. um when you started being a coordinator would you say you were a pass heavy guy a run heavy guy or do you kind of just take what the defense is giving you and go from there well i definitely think you have to analyze what the defense is weak at you know what can you attack you know where are the gaps in their scheme and for us we, we've always had um a really wide range as far as like 
when you look at gap scheme, wide zone, inside zone, pin pull, um, no pull power. We, we've done all that stuff. Um, even last year, you know, I, I thought we evolved into a different type of running team by the end of the season. So, which were ways to highlight the back that we had and the and alignment that we had, which we thought were, you know, athletic in the pin pull world, coupled with, you know, some scheme where we could work on no pull power. And um, so I think we we do a great job being ready to run anything, honestly. And you got to you gotta get good at stuff too, right? You can't be an inch deep and a mile wide, of course. But I think that our offense, you know, provides a lot of answers in the run game. Yep. You've had a really uh, traditional uh, history as far as having been a quarterback coach, wide receivers coach, but you've also coached offensive line as well. Do you feel like that impacts a lot of how you see offense and your philosophy today? It does. Uh, I've been really blessed in that. I mean that. I've, I've been very fortunate. Just I don't think I, I necessarily – actually, I shouldn't say I don't think. I know – I didn't sit down at the beginning of my career and like, okay, this year I'm going to, you know, check this box, check this box. Um, I went where it was needed every uh, team I was on. And, you know, that O-line experience, you know, nine years in that room uh, really formulated a lot of the success I had later as far as translation in the quarterback room, understanding protection, having a good, you know, firm grasp on the run game, but then still having the background and skill to, be able to put it all together with the quarterback. So I've been really lucky that way that it helps my vision of the game. Obviously, you had some great receivers over there at UW. Um, you got Polk. You got, obviously, Adunze. But I, I was watching film on just McMillan, and I go, all right, man. I'm looking at JSN, and I go, he got some McMillan in him. I think McMillan oh, yeah. might be a little faster than JSN, but JSN's such a smooth route runner. When you looked at the personnel here, um, was that part of your decision-making, saying, look, man, I got three dogs, at receiver, <laughs> I got some running backs. I can do something with this personnel group. No, there, there's no question. When I was looking at, you know, who is here and, and the tools that are – here at uh, Seattle, I thought that there was a lot of familiarity in what would be able to be applicable in the system. So, and I do, I think 11 here looks a little bit like 11 there. You know, those are good option route runners, guys that if you can get somebody flat footed or a nickel or safety on those guys, they can highlight their skills. And then you got the big bodied X and DK in Rome. And, um, but still, I think that's the thing that was amazing about Rome. And, I, and when I watched DK, I think the same thing is like, these guys are not just nine runners, right. you know, like these guys are, are crossing route, they're middle field open, they're sitting in zones, they're really versatile for big guys. And then you got the experienced route runner in the Z, you know, Lockett can do all those things. I mean, you can move that guy about anywhere. So excited about that. Yep. I'd like to personally thank you for what was an amazing fourth down call. Uh, in the <laughs> I was going to ask about that, too. That hurt my heart. Oh, well, that's a, great well, call, though. A great call. Do you consider yourself kind of an aggressive play caller? I loved it. <laughs> um, I think when, when you need to be, you, you have to be ready to be. You know, And I think that where players and teams can assimilate to you a little bit is that when they know you're not playing for the tie or not to lose, your players will play more aggressive. Now, we have to do that within the parameters of the game and be smart and not foolish. Um, but certainly in, in moments like that, you want to play to win the game. Um, there are times in college where you can just out-personnel some guys, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, look, our guys are just better. Let's throw it up and let's make right. a play. I would imagine you get to the NFL, um, there's probably less of that going on. When you look at the defensive personnel, you compare it to college football, what do you see some of the challenges might might be for you calling yeah. this issue? No, I think that's a great point. I think that there's you know less opportunity for you to just – 
severely expose somebody defensively because there's so many good football players in the league. So I think you got to find other ways to expose the defense, you know, whether it's leverage or numbers or whatever it is. But I think the mismatch piece is far less likely in the NFL than it is college. Uh, I would imagine, you know, we were talking about how stressful the life of a coach can be. And in bump mentioned, of course, the life of a coach's family, I would imagine for you guys, Last month and a half has been pretty hectic, you know, not yeah. knowing exactly where you would end up. But you clearly had a love for Seattle. You made that very clear yeah. uh, when when you were here with Washington. Is your family kind of happy to to know that you guys are here in Seattle? Yeah, no, uh, my, my wife and daughter are extremely excited to be here. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was hard because there was relationships that were just starting to happen in Alabama, you know, and there's people that we're getting to know. And um, it was just a, it was a difficult process to go through. And, and I think the the timing mechanism between the NFL and college is what makes it so hard if there was a cleaner line there. And, you know, we could have just let one side play out before the other. It would have been a lot easier. But, um, you know, there there's really three parts to that. There's the Washington part. There's the Alabama part. And, right. you know, there was my relationship with Mike. So you just had to let it play out and make the best decision you could. And, and you know, I couldn't be more excited with how it ended up. I love how um, just one of your schemes, like your mesh, concept right yeah. it's multiple you run it from tight wide bunch uh, you motion guys out yeah. and i watch the way michael pennis goes through his progression i watch <laughs> how people hit their spots and i go this is just a well-coached team right yeah. uh you, you see the similarities in, in everything that they do when you run the mesh concept i think of what mike mcdonald wants to do and everyone else wants to do here it's about communicating and teaching your guys so when you sat down with mike did you see a similarity in just the way you guys go about teaching and preparing your guys for just a week of practice or even games on Saturdays and Sundays? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think that's a good observation. I think, Mike, you know, where we, we're speaking the same language is you're trying to make your guys as multiple as possible against as many things for him defensively and us attacking as many things as possible and still making it easy for your guys. So we would always say easy for us, hard for them. Now, that doesn't mean – you know, be simple, you know, but if you can find ways to get your guys to operate faster and more effectively and, and something that they do every week and they can, you know, do it out of another formation, but it looks really different to the defense for us. That's what we always felt was our advantage. But at the same time, have enough one-offs and wrinkles that, you know, you kind of keep people live on, on their toes. We've naturally, of course, because of your transition from uh, college to the pros, been talking about the comparison between the NFL and NCAA. And, and Bump, you're almost part of this conversation. I, both of you obviously have insight here. Um, Bump mentioned he sees a lot more similarities between today's college game and the pros. Do you see kind of a blending of those ideas that it's, it feels less for, far apart than it used to? Yeah, I, I think there, there's parts that do. And, and there's certainly parts that, that are not. You know, you don't. I think with the value in possessions and the number of times that you actually get the football in the NFL, there, there's a, I don't want to say that you're wasteful in college with the number of plays that you can run and, and that you're frivolous, but to some point, some teams are and have had even success at the college level of just running plays to run plays. Um, I think you have to be a lot more focused and a lot more dutiful with your time and, and the amount of energy you put into each concept and how many snaps you're actually going to get in a game. You know, and, and that's where I think the number of possessions and how you get limited in that basis is so important in the NFL. So that's where you see the the possession control and things like that that are so critical in the NFL. 
Last year you coached one of the best or the best offensive line in the country in college football. Uh, this year, well, last year we had a, a more consistency on this offensive line. This year with injuries or whatnot, things yeah. happen with this O-line. How excited are you just to get your hands on those guys? I would imagine you look at the receivers, and obviously everyone has things to work on, but you look at that box and, you know, it all starts and ends with that box, man. Yeah. What do you see with that O-line? What are you excited about? Well, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, I think, you know, having two young tackles that, that can set the anchor on the outside is, is really exciting. I know those guys got banged up a little bit throughout the course of the season. And, you know, I think the your ability to have quality depth in this league will be pivotal for your success. And I think when you look at those two guys, it, it really starts with them, you know, and, and 67 cross, I think is, I mean, sky's the limit for that kid. He, he's phenomenal. I think he could be really good. And you know, expand his game this year and, you know, just the consistency in play and, you know, getting more physical and finishing all the time. I, I see some flashes of a really, really special group there. Um, we just got to get it to be, you know, more consistent and, and I think they'll do great. I would imagine you're also really excited related to working with the guys uh, that are working up front with working with Ken Walker, mm. getting your hands on Zach Charbonnet and kind of seeing what you can do with this run game. Bump mentioned earlier, we saw this elite passing offense, but it's not like the run game wasn't also impressive. And now you've got these great weapons. I mean, yeah. have you already started thinking of like, how soon do you start drawing up plays you want to use? Well, I think uh, when coach got done on the back of my contract, I you had a couple starting of them, so. <laughs> just penciling him in. But no, you're, you're spot on the, the two backs, you know, and, and really that whole room, but specifically, Specifically, you know, Kenneth and, and uh, Zach, those guys are they're special backs. And, you know, Nine's ability to change direction and get vertical is, is different than a lot of guys. And they both have good hands out of the backfield. Um, I think Kennedy is going to do a great job in that room just in the development and mentorship of those backs. And he's seen so many good backs and done such a good job over the years that I think that room's going to take off. Last one I got for you because I need to know. Right, that fourth down call on the apple cut. What, great one, again, which a fantastic Great call. call. I couldn't be great mad call. at it. It went down, and I go, hell of a call, man. Uh, <laughs> when you decided to call that play, your guys line up, and you see how WSU lines up. In your head, did you think, yeah, we're golden. We got yeah, this. 20, yeah, 20, 20-plus. Yep. Yep, felt really good. <laughs> man, and ain't that a great feeling? Well, like, was, we got the look we wanted. What was crazy, it, uh, it was a play that, that really, it was in the goal line section. It wasn't mm -hmm. even four there, so... I pulled it out of there and, and, you know, gave the guys a heads up because we had a timeout, what was going on. Um, but we had been kind of in that double wing formation throughout the game and really saw them attacking the edge of the formation. Mm -hmm. So I felt pretty good about it. I mean, Kalen had called a timeout and tried to do the draw them off sides yep. punt, and then he came back, Are you still feel good about Grub? I was like, absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't feel better. And he's like, we got another timeout. And I'm like, no, we're good. Nice. So it was, it was great. And guys executed it to the T, so it was, it was nice. Uh, last question for us, and then we we got to let you get out of here. And uh, this is related to what you're going to do when you get okay. out of here. What's next for you? I mean, it, you've got such a an interesting off season ahead as an entire coaching staff, and then for you yourself, there's so much to work with, and and it's not like starting from scratch, but like, God, there's so much room to just do everything that you want. What, what's next for you? Well, I think right now is you know familiarity um, in the staff and our players. You know, just so watching personnel tapes, seeing yeah. what we have how it applies to the scheme. And then from there, you know, you're really working on the installation process for phase one, phase two, phase three at OTAs. So that's the next real step is the application of the installation when we aren't in a dead period and we can actually have contact with the guys. Um, and that part's really exciting, thinking about them getting back here and getting to work with them and 
just seeing them honestly and getting to meet them so i'd you know i'd already talked to gino and drew a little bit they're both down in florida and maybe uh just saying hi to those guys a little bit more but just getting to know them honestly yeah. like just as people take a trip to florida that's right get away from the rain <laughs> go, to, go down bit. there and say yeah, what's exactly. up play some golf <laughs> <laughs> there you go he is the ox offensive coordinator ryan grubb kind enough to join us to uh, to give us some some insight i am uh, surprised how willing you were to really talk about offensive concepts and it's yeah. gonna be a f- fascinating they got some season. film on us i think they, they know what we might do so. <laughs> yeah yeah it's good stuff thank you again coach we you appreciate bet. it appreciate all right you guys let's get to four down territory this, this is Four Down Territory, going inside, inside the, the game. game with former Seahawks and Coug wide receiver Michael Bumpus. Bumpus. Seahawks to try to pull off this offseason. All right, the more I look into it, I'm like, look, man, you have uh, some things to do on defense. And we've been talking about Patrick Queen for, what, a week or two now, man. And he's projected to get a four-year deal worth $67 million. That was in November, $16.75 million a year. He tweeted with a uh, thumbs down saying, no, that's not the deal. So now the new deal that's projected is five years, $92 million. That's $18.52 per season that seems more like it all right we talked to the nfl insiders we know they say look you gotta go and get queen but then i'm also like let's sprinkle a little bit on top man why not go and get van noy right he's an outside line linebacker played in 42 percent of snaps for baltimore he's a bit older but he could bring in just some veteran knowledge there the understanding of this defense like it's going to be tough because the ravens cannot sign raekwon uh excuse me not raekwon uh, uh patrick queen and matabuke right that's going to break the bank right there. Matabuke is up for a big payday as well. So I'm going, look, man, whoever they don't pick up, if they don't pick up, you go after that, sprinkling some Van Noy into that system too. You never know. That's my wish list. Second down. Antonio Pierce is taking a specific approach to Pat Mahomes. What's the good and bad about that approach? His approach is have you heard of the Jordan rules back in the day? The uh, Detroit Pistons had. I'm assuming it has Jordan to do with Michael rules. Jordan. Yes, Michael Jordan and the Pistons. The, the Jordan rules were you hit him every time he gets into the paint. Mm. Now, looking at Antonio Pierce, we're around the same age. I go, look, man, we old school, dog. You know, dang well, they're not going to let you hit Patrick Mahomes <laughs> no. like that. But here's what they, the Raiders did do they beat Kansas City 20 to 14. They did hit Patrick Mahomes 10 times and had four sacks. So then I'm looking at their aggressiveness. I go, okay, but this is where you messed up, Antonio Pierce. You can't let the NFL know that you got Pat Mahomes rules because you know what they're going to do. They're going to watch you even closer when it comes to hitting that quarterback. Pat Mahomes got the second most roughing the passer calls last year. Not very many, only like four or five or something like that. But you can't put the NFL on notice. I love the aggressiveness. I love the idea of getting after the quarterback. But uh, you're not going to be able to touch Pat Mahomes uh, like you would some of these other quarterbacks. So I love it, Pierce, but uh, you just put the NFL on notice. They're going to be watching you. (laughs) Our version of Bounty Gate. Third down. (laughs) Derrick Henry is a free agent. So what teams have been connected to him and what teams do you see as being a good fit? Yeah, this is wild. It's crazy that uh, D. Henry is hitting the scene in the free agent market, but, I mean, it makes sense. He's making a lot of money or made a lot of money, and he's getting up there in age. The first team that's been connected to him are the Baltimore Ravens. Could you imagine him on this team? No. They're about uh, 84000 well, in the negative when it comes to salary cap, but you and I know how things yeah. go down. They will fix that. With our Ravens. With our Ravens, With our right? Ravens. Gus Edwards has one more year left on his deal. That's $4.5 million. Dobbins is a free agent, and you have Mitchell as well. He was a rookie. I like that. Uh, but you still got to be willing to 
run the football states, run the ball 14 times against Kansas City. I look at the Houston Texans and I go, look, if there's a team, a new hot team on the block, they are the Houston Texans, have $62 million in cap space. They got uh, Damian Pierce, who has two years left on his deal. Um, if he were to get cut, it's only a $400,000 when it comes to dead cap. J.J. Taylor has one left. But this is the team that I really think he should look at. I'm looking, and it's, it's unfortunate because they're in our division, mm -hmm. but the Rams, man. <sighs> you look at the Rams, and they got Kyron Williams over there, right? Two years left on this rookie deal. But this is a role a guy like Henry should embrace. One-two combo. At this point of your, your season, you get that one-two combo, let the young bug run the football a whole bunch of times, you get inside the red zone, boom, you do your thing. The last one, Dallas Cowboys. Now they're $16 million in debt, but I'm saying Pollard is a free agent, and if you really want to win, Jerry Jones, you throw Henry back there, then you have no excuses. So I got the Ravens, the Texans, the Rams, and the Cowboys, but the Rams, man, could you imagine them with D. Henry on the Can squad? Can you imagine a Cowboys team that signs Derrick Henry, has a huge offseason, Derrick Henry gets to 2,000 yards again and they lose in the wild card round. What a happening. season for Dallas. I see it happening. Fourth down. We're going to spend the rest of the segment on this fourth down. What stood out from our conversation with Seahawks OC Ryan Grubb? Um, the location played a role into um, him staying here, obviously with his family and his daughters and whatnot. Personnel played a role into this whole thing. And it seems like when we're talking to Grubb, it's almost like you see that twinkle in his eye and he's already got things going. You could feel and see that he's been the offensive coordinator for this team for yeah. longer than he's actually had the position and has already been thinking about a whole bunch of things that he can do with this. Um, I love that he talked about uh, just the multiple looks. Uh, we talked about the fourth down. Just sitting with him, you kind of get a feel for his energy or whatnot and the just the calm confidence that we got out of Grubb I think was awesome because I think we got the same thing out of mm -hmm. Dirty. I think we got the same thing out of, out of Mike McDonald. So it feels like a good mix so far. And uh, definitely the personnel and location has something to do with this decision. It worked out beautifully for Grubb. There's a really funny tweet from Mina Kimes that I'm actually going to um, butcher. So I apologize for that. <laughs> but she talks about kind of like what you want from a DC and what you want from an OC. And she's like, from a DC, you want a guy that's just like – just a loose cannon, absolutely crazy, like focused on like right. violence as a defense. And uh -huh. from an OC, you want a guy who's a rocket scientist, who is like, like recruited by NASA. Right. I think that what stood out to me, um, and maybe you guys could hear it, I'm just talking about like in person sensing it. Um, so I'm curious actually to see if you guys felt that uh, over the airwaves. It, it felt like he was very pensive, a little bit reserved, um, but really smart. And I think really so into what it is he does that I think that if we would have gotten into an X's and O's conversation, he would have had it. And, and I was surprised by that because uh -huh. I got so many good questions from listeners and I actually feel horrible now for not including more of them, but I got lots of kind of like X's and O's, hey, ask me about the scheme and ask me about this. And I was like, oh, you know, like I'm hesitant because your gut instinct as a host is you don't want to jump into that with a first interview because right. sometimes it puts people on edge. And I knew that he was a little reserved, so I was hesitant to do that. I think he absolutely would have talked about it. Yeah. I think he would have told us. Yep. I think he would have gone over concepts. I think he would have gone over everything that fascinates him. I think that he would – I think that there are – uh, podcasts like that would love to talk to him for for hours about the details of offenses and I think that he'd be willing to do it like he he seems to just love what he does yeah he does and he and he's good at it and he seems like a good communicator mm -hmm. so uh so yeah we'll interview him again and we'll dive deeper but you know when you initially uh interview a coach you want to get a feel for their personality and where where they want to go and where they don't want to go so I think it was a good first interview well I didn't want to put him in a bad spot with being like what do you want from a quarterback because 
he doesn't want to say the wrong thing, mm-hmm. but I really think he would have answered any question. Yep. It was a it was a very cool interview. I, I'm not sure if that translated on air, like that willingness to talk about things. But I, I thought that that was a, my biggest takeaway is very pensive, very thoughtful and like a really smart guy. Yep. Um, and that's good news for the Seahawks. You're listening to Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. Mike Trout, some updates on uh, whether or not he's in it for the long haul with the Angels. That's coming your way next. This is The Timeline with Bump and Stacy. Brought to you by 1-800-DUIOA. 425 says, great question on the mesh formation. You could tell he knew you did your homework. Well done, Bump. Okay, we don't need to be doling out great questions <laughs> on, behalf that of, count? on behalf of guests. No, it comes from a listener. Okay, the great question. He said, good point. He said that was a great observation. He said it was a great observation. That doesn't count? Yeah, I don't think he's expecting me to be watching a lot of <laughs> tape and talking about, you know, mesh formations. But, you know, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, no, it was, it was a great interview. If you guys missed our conversation, uh, Bump and, uh, and Grub got into a, a, some X's and O's a bit. It's a, it is a great conversation. You can listen back to the Bump and Stacy podcast. Uh, we post that about an hour after the show concludes. It will kick off hour to our conversation with new Seahawks OC Ryan Grubb. To the timeline, ESPN's Jay Williams not ready to crown Iowa star Caitlin Clark as a great yet. Cut number 14. Take a listen. I think she is the Stephen Curry of women's basketball. I think she has changed the dynamics of the way the game is played. I think the way she plays, the pizzazz, is that she's probably the most prolific scorer the game of basketball has ever seen. Unmatched. I am, I am unwilling, and maybe it's more the, the Kobe mentorship around me, to say that she is great yet. I think she is the most prolific scorer the game has ever seen. I hold great or the levels of immortality or the pantheon to when you win championships. I'm just, that's just me. So Diana Taurasi, when you win three consecutive championships, two-time national player of the year, it has to, it has to culminate with the chip. It has to. I mean, Brianna Stewart, if we're talking about GOAT legends of the game, she's won four chips. Four chips, multiple national players of the year. So I'm not saying that she's not at a high, high, high level, but for it to go to the states of immortality, in my opinion, it has to culminate with your team winning a championship. What do you think about Jay's argument? <clears throat> um, I'm not going to get at him the way most people have. They're like, what are you talking about? She is great. She's the all-time leading scorer, in, and she'll, she will be in, um, in NCAA history. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the way I look at college athletes. College sports is the only time where you know when their career is going to be over, right? Unless they, an injury happens or something else happens, God forbid, right? You know, okay, in football, this guy's probably leaving after his junior year. Mm-hmm. In basketball, um, most women hoopers stay all four years, I, I, I want to assume. So um, I look at it and I go, I'm just going to wait till it's all said and done, and I'll look at her numbers and compare them to everyone else, including championships. She is a great basketball player, no doubt about it. But I think that Jay, a guy like Jay Williams has been exposed to so much more yeah. that uh, – he challenges greatness because he's been around exactly. it at a different level. So I don't think he's not saying that she's not a great basketball player. I think he's kind of he's going to look at it the way that I do and say, okay, when it's all said and done, then I'll compare her to everyone else when she's done playing college ball. I don't, yeah, I don't think he's being like misogynistic with comments because I also don't think he's saying she's not great. He's using a great as uh, interchangeably with saying like goat, right? Like saying, can you say she is an all timer if she's not won a championship? Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to do it. I will say. 
Caitlin Clark being the all-time scorer in NCAA right. women's history is impressive with the program she's at. Might she have mm-hmm. won if she was with, you know, Brianna Stewart's, you know, like UConn teams? Like if, if like it, you have to consider the program she's with too. Right. It's not a bad program by any means. But when you want to talk about championships in women's college basketball, there are programs that have just kind of, you know, dominated the field. Right. Yeah. And so maybe she'd have championships where she with one of those programs. And, and that, and I appreciate that about her is that she didn't go to UConn, to South Carolina, to Notre Dame, uh, to all these schools who have a rich history of dominating this sport. She says, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to keep it in Iowa and do my thing. But I mean, look, the greatest score of all time in women's basketball, and she's going to be the greatest score of all time in college basketball in general, that alone puts her into the greatness category. I think he's waiting for the level of greatness. I agree. And I, and I, and I can't fight that because honestly, if we were to talk about achievements and greatness and elite status and goat status with any athlete in any sport, Mm -hmm. would it not always come down to what have they won? Like what have they really accomplished? Are they a grand slam, you know, champion? Are they a world series champion? Uh, You know, did they, you know, take the masters? Did they like, what did, you know, what did they ultimately win? Like, it's not, you know, you can't be, she'll be in her school's hall of fame. She'll be, you know, a college hall of famer. Like she's, I think she'll, she'll do just fine in the pros, but like it's any sport, any athlete, anything, it will always come down to, but how many rings, how many titles? Right. So here's the, the third leading scorer in men's basketball history is Freeman Williams out of Portland state. I doubt many people know who he is drafted. Number eight overall went to Boston and for his career averaged around, 12 to 13 points yeah so and then he also mentioned her making that next step as far as college goes come on now she, love she's one Clark, of the greatest. we love Caitlin yeah Clark. she's a baller uh all right next story here mike trout says he's in it for the long haul with the angels and asking for a trade would be taking this is interesting the easy way out cut number 12. the easy way out is just ask for a trade there might be a time maybe uh i've really haven't thought about this but you know when i signed that contract i I'm loyal. You know, I want to win the championship here. And, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's mainly, I think the, the, the overall picture of winning a championship or getting to the playoffs here is bigger satisfaction bailing out and just taking the easy way out. So I think that's, that's what been my mindset, maybe down the road if something's changed, but that's been my mindset ever since the trade speculations, you know, came up. So that's where I'm at. I don't know, Mike, that you're going to be able to win everything you want to win with that organization. Maybe I'll be eating crow, but low key, feel like shots fired. I feel like shots fired at Shohei and saying, "Look, I'm not going to take the easy way out, Mike. You probably should take the easy way out and get out of there because the Angels have shown nothing to make you believe that they're going to do everything they can to make sure you get a championship." I don't know what the numbers look like over there. I don't know if it's similar to the Seahawks where they are profitable overall, but they're not winning games. I don't know what it is, but I'm just looking at the moves that the Angels make and don't make, and it doesn't tell me that they are committed to winning a championship. Now, Mike, you will go down as one of the greatest baseball players of all time. You go ahead and get your money. You get all the individual accolades, but I don't, I don't frown on dudes who move 
out of situations because mm -hmm. they're not winning ball games and organizations aren't doing what they can to help you win ball games. So Mike, I mean, he, he's hey, he's he's one of the greatest, man. So you, you say what you want, you do what you want. But I, I feel like it was shots fired low key at Shohei. We're gonna go to cut number thirteen, and we are sticking with the Angels. Angels third baseman Anthony Rendon told reporters over the weekend that baseball not a top priority. Take a listen. Um, I'm married. I've had four kids. My priorities have changed since I was um, in my early 20s. So definitely my perspective on baseball has been more skewed. Is it still a top priority for you? Though? It's never been a top priority for me. This is a job. So I do this to make a living. Uh, my faith, my family come first before this job. So if those things come before it, I'm leaving. Is it a priority? Oh, it's a priority for sure. This is my job. I'm here. All right. I don't want to talk to you guys at seven in the morning or whatever time it is. So, Did you, I mean, do you want? I mean, do you want to like be here playing baseball? I have answered your question. So why do you keep picking at it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, you technically answered it. Thank you. Since signing with the Angels for seven years, two hundred forty-five million back in twenty twenty, he's appeared in two hundred of a possible five hundred forty-six games. That's not a great return on investment it's there. Not. It's not. And you kind of feel the uh, the friction there a little bit. Now, he's not being, like, rude or anything. He did it in a, in a polite way. But uh, someday right, man. You hope you get more out of that situation. So, Anthony, good luck, man. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm torn when it comes to – to Anthony Rendon. I think that, um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm biased because I liked that kind of like a curmudgeonly attitude uh, with the Nats. So I can't really complain about the same thing mm -hmm. when he's with the Angels because he's kind of the same person. Right. Um, but also, I think that uh, I, I was pushing back when he was complaining about like seasons, you know, they're too long. And it's like, bro, you haven't played a full season <laughs> in a minute. Stop complaining hey, about how long a season is. He said his body can't take exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> clearly, clearly it can't. The one thing, though, that I will defend him on is I don't think it's the end of the world if someone has priorities outside of playing. And I think that many athletes mm -hmm. are physically gifted enough to be able to play the sport that they do professionally. And when people get really mad and think like, you mean ball isn't life? I think it comes from a place of jealousy. Uh, it does. Ball was life until a certain point. And then you get married and then you have kids, you expand your family. And it's like, there are more important things to this life than just ball, but ball provides great opportunities. So no, I'm not mad at guys prioritizing their family and their faith over ball. You can I do know. your thing. I, I prioritize that over this job. You know, why can't he do it? Julio Rodriguez explains why he wasn't happy with the 2023 season. His reasoning will surprise you. That's next. Bumpin' Stacy, Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On Seattle Sports. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Rost. Back-to-back -back Mariners here. Coming up in 15 minutes, Mariners reliever Taylor Sacedo is joining us from spring training. Before we get to that, Julio Rodriguez on why he wasn't happy with his 2023 season. Let's go ahead and start cut number 15. Here's what Julio had to say. You heard about it. Like, I wasn't happy with it. You know, I feel like a lot of people can say, oh, like he was, like you said, like he was fourth in MVP. Like he, he did this, he did that. How can he not be happy? But like you said, too, I feel like there was a lot of moments that I feel like I should have done better. Like I could have done better. And like I know my ability. I know what I want for myself. Julio not happy with 2023 because he didn't meet expectations and knows he could have done more. Go figure a professional athlete is going to feel that way, but it's still good to hear it. 
expectations for himself. Exactly. Not what you and I say. Exactly. Not what uh, MLB.com says. He goes out there and he goes, look, yeah, I might have tore that thing up in August, but there were times where I hit my droughts. I was mm-hmm. chasing uh, pitches outside of the zone. Mm-hmm. I was I hit into some double plays and clutch situations. That's just a great athlete expecting greatness out of himself, and I have no problem with that. I think that it's important that your best player, um, whether it be just within the team and in, in, in personal conversations or publicly, like goes out there and says, look, I didn't do enough, because if he's able to go out there and say, I didn't do enough, everybody on the roster should do the same, even if you're JP and you have the best year of your career you know what i mean exactly. you're like look there's always something to work on so no i'm, I'm glad that um he put that out there but i also want to say hey don't be too hard on yourself because you did have a pretty good year he did have a really good year obviously august influenced that quite a bit but i'm um, still you're leaving the season thinking and knowing that he's your best player and you're entering the season knowing the same still it was a sophomore slump cut number 18 that's how julio himself described it i had a lot of learning experience last year but I'm grateful for it. You know, this, this that was my second year in the league where a lot of people say, oh, that's uh, the sophomore slump or whatever. I don't know how that how that's going to fit in, like, a lot of people's mind now. But for me, that was a sophomore slump that I was grateful for, that I was able to learn, that I, that I, that I know it's going to help me out down the road in my career. And that's something that I'm not going to take for granted. And that's something that I will never forget. That it's always going to keep pushing me to keep getting better and never feel that way. Again, numbers weren't drastically different. No. He slashed in 2022, 284, 345, 509 with an 853 OPS. In 2023, it was 275, 333, 485 slugging down uh, with an 818 OPS, which was down as well. Still hit for 32 home runs compared to 28 as a rookie. It still felt like the rookie year was better, and I don't know. Because it was new. Yeah. It was fresh. Yeah. And you didn't – you expected Julio to hit the scene and make some noise, but – Probably not as much noise as he did. That's why they locked him up so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned his lineup. Yeah, it's not a big difference there. Um, he did have more hits this year, uh, uh, more doubles. He hit more home runs, like you mentioned, more RBIs. Uh, but in, in certain places, I think it's more situational baseball where you need this hit or you know this, uh, this, this hit can change the momentum of, of this game. So I think Julio does what the great ones do is that they isolate situations. You can look at you know, the bigger picture and say overall it was a decent year, but I think Julio it says, look, no, I'm looking at this game against the Nationals. I'm looking at this game against the Giants or whoever and saying, all right, those moments, I need to be better in those moments, and, and I think he will be better in those moments. But it's so refreshing to hear somebody who finished fourth in MVP voting and say, look, I had a sophomore slump. Um, there are two cuts that were most interesting to me. One's going to feel a little repetitive and one I think is kind of refreshing. So, um, let's go to cut number 16. Uh, this is the last thing Julio had to say about his 2023 season. And I know a lot of people can say, Oh, like he should have done this, he should have done that. But none of you guys know my, with respect to all of you guys and everybody that watched me, everybody that supports me. None of you guys would want me to be successful for this team, like for this team, like I want to be successful for this team because I'm the one that's out there working, putting myself through a lot of things that you guys don't see and you will never see because I will never show you guys. Julio, typically very jovial and lighthearted, does have a little bit of pushback there basically saying, no one wants to improve more than me. You can look from afar and you can say, he should have done this. He needs to get better with breaking balls. He needs to get better with not chasing. He needs to do X, Y, and Z. Know that no one is trying harder than me to be better because no one wants it more than me. You know, I'm going to do what my wife expects me to do all the time, which is read between the lines right now. 
all right? And I'm reading between the lines, and I'm seeing a guy or hearing a guy who um, is taking a step forward when it comes to just his growth as a man and as a person, right? Because yeah. remember the first two years of Julio is I will do every interview. I'll pick up the phone, and I'll, and I'll say hello to your friend on Instagram. I will do all of these, th- these things where now it's like, okay, I'm honing into myself and who I am to this franchise, and my tone is a bit different, right? My approach is going to be a bit different, and now I have the resume to give some pushback. Torres, before, you know, he just answered the question and smile and move on. So I like this. Yeah. I, I think that this is this is big in the development of Julio as the leader of this organization. I think that there's a some people will read it as defensiveness, but I don't think you have defensiveness without having some autonomy right. and without having some ownership and without having pride. Mm-hmm. And I think that those things just naturally go hand in hand. And sometimes you have to learn to reel in the defensiveness, right? Anyone, anyone, regardless of job. Um, but I I can appreciate that with more ownership over what you do and your craft comes like a pride in it and sometimes a willingness to to step up and and to kind of stand behind it. Um, Last cut that I want to play and bump, I'll tell you why I thought this was interesting. One of the things we've always wondered is whether the front office not only needs to, but has been as Mm -hmm. transparent as possible with players and whether that's led to some animosity between players and the decision makers. Cut number 20, take a listen to what Julio had to say here. I mean, it's really good. You know, it seems like they they care about what, what we thought and they care about like, how we're viewing things, and they made sure that we're clear on like on the why and, and the why things were happening. I feel like that's that's something that any player will appreciate from from the team, obviously. Saying the front office did a good job of telling us why certain offseason moves were made. I don't know if that's new or not, but mm-hmm. I liked hearing it. No, I like hearing it because we've never heard it before with any player when it comes to this. And I think you and I have asked that same question because we know in the NBA, you're talking to LeBron, mm-hmm. you're talking to KD, mm-hmm. you're talking to, to the leaders of that team. We know the NFL, you're talking to your quarterback, you're talking to Aaron Rodgers, you're talking to uh, Pat Mahomes when you're making moves. So I like that there's some sort of communication and that Julio's not sitting at the crib and saying, all right, I'm finding out when y'all find out the moves that are being right, made without, without any type of rhyme or reason, right? So no, I appreciate that and I think that that should, should be the approach. I know there are some people who say, well, they should just go out there and play. If you are Julio, you're not just a player on this roster. Uh-huh. You, it's a, like a partnership in this thing. You are the face. You're, you pay the most money. You should have insider information. We're sticking with the Mariners. Let's see if we get some insider information of our own. We're talking with Mariners reliever Taylor Saucedo out there at spring training. That's next.